Ladies, gentlemen, non-binary, I'm Ethan Shapiro, founder of Climate Change Realty and host of the Change in the Climate podcast. And let me ask you this. Are you aware of any other way to donate thousands of dollars to your favorite environmental nonprofits with zero dollars out of pocket? Because that's what happens when you find your real estate agent with Climate Change Realty. www.ccrealty.org. Find your real estate agent today and save the planet. Enjoy the podcast. Andy, really nice to meet you. Thank you so much for taking some time to come on the show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Ethan. Yeah, absolute pleasure to have you, man. And you know, we always like to get this show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing the work you're doing at the current moment. So I'm the CEO of a, a nonprofit group called As You Sow, As You Sow, as in So Shall Ye Reap. Uh, we've been around for 30 years. We were founded in 1992, and we focus on uh, corporate accountability. So we engage the biggest corporations in the world on issues including climate change, environmental health, uh, racial justice, ocean plastics, uh, egregious CEO pay packages. So we look at a broad range of issues and essentially we sit down with companies and we point out the risk as shareholders. We represent shareholders and we say, look, you've got all this risk. Here's how we believe you can reduce the risk. And generally, the companies are very receptive. And if they're not, we escalate by filing a shareholder resolution, which then brings the conversation to all the shareholders that gets voted on at the annual meeting. So how did you initially become interested in this work to begin with? What's your uh, background story? My background story is actually, this is my first, uh, my first job in a nonprofit. Before that, I was doing startups uh, for quite a while, writing business plans, raising venture money, and... Uh, working with a lot of inventors on different things. Uh, I guess the previous one was working on uh, some fuel cells, grid-scale um, energy storage using fuel cells. And before that, I had a medical device company that monitored people's physiology using a T-shirt. We had a shirt that monitored your health and transmitted it back to doctors. And prior to that, I was a documentary filmmaker. No kidding. So what did you what did you go to school for? Did you go to school for filmmaking? Did you have like a, a law background, or were you, was business like the beginning of it all? A media, media and film. Right. Oh, so and are you the founder of As You So? I am not. Uh, a guy named Tom Van Dyke, who he founded in 1992, and As You So was founded to be a plaintiff in litigation against companies that had carcinogens and reproductive toxicants in their products. So stuff like. Uh, formaldehyde and toluene in nail polish. We, as you so, would test products and then they would uh, file these cases with the companies. And what happened is we started to win settlements and that money was then realized, well, we're dealing with Revlon or we're dealing with you know, different companies. Let's engage them as shareholders so maybe they could avoid these risks in advance. And that practice then grew first looking at sustainability and then environmental health. And then when I came on, we started working on climate change and some of the other social issues, racial justice, diversity, equity, inclusion, CEO pay, those sort of things. Right. So there's a never ending list of challenges and issues that we can kind of tackle, whether it's in your personal or professional life. What do you personally see as some of the most pressing challenges of our current time? I'd say the zeitgeist right now, looking at all the shareholder resolutions, which really does reflect what's going on in society. Climate change is number one. Climate change permeates all the other issue areas. It's uh, it's totally, it's in every supply chain. It's in 
it's just affecting everything. So, so number one would be climate change. And what that means is really the transition off of fossil fuels into a clean energy economy. Uh, the second would be racial justice and diversity, equity, inclusion. So justice broadly. That is a major issue. It's a systemic change. And the companies recognize it. We, after the George Floyd murder, we looked around and we said, how do you even rate and rank companies on this issue? And we found there were no good metrics. So we brought together a team of experts and we developed 57 what are called key performance indicators mm -hmm. about racial justice and diversity, equity, inclusion. And then our research team gathered that data on a thousand companies, the Russell 1000, and we published a scorecard. So now we have a way of evaluating companies. And so when we sit down with them, we can say, you scored a five, your direct competitors scored a 32. Here's why. These are the four things they are doing you are not. Here's the cost of doing those things and becoming competitive. And here's the cost of doing nothing, which is going to be, well, it's going to affect your brand. It's going to affect... Uh, being able to attract and retain the best talent because people want to be working at a culture that, that recognizes these things. Um, investors are also looking at this. So when companies evaluate it, they say, oh, it's much cheaper to actually take care of, address this issue than to just not address it. And so last year we had 188 engagements. We met with 188 companies on this range of issues. Uh, 102 said, thank you very much. Thank you for the data. Thank you for the meeting. You guys are like McKinsey for free. You've, you've helped us as, as our shareholders. You have actually helped us recognize risk. 86 said, oh, we're not quite ready to deal with this. So we escalated that. We filed a, what's called a shareholder resolution. And those are SEC sanctioned 500 word documents that are filed six months before the annual meeting. And it means that every shareholder now gets to think about these issues, gets to discuss these issues, and gets to vote on it at the annual meeting. And so um, of those, once we did that, about half the company said, you know, we really don't want our shareholders to be talking about this. Let's just take care of it. And so we withdrew the resolution because the company agreed to make changes. About, so out of 188, about 40 went to a vote. And of those, we had eight majority votes, uh, had a 45% average vote, and about 1.7 trillion was voted yes on our resolution. So you can see that shareholders really want to reduce risk at the companies. It's just a very kind of basic business 101 um, activity. And this is a way to communicate with the companies. Now, sometimes the companies, even after you get a majority vote, so you sit down with them and go, 70% of the shareholders want you to deal with racial justice or want you to have a climate plan or want you to reduce ocean plastics. And they still are resistant. They won't do it. So you might file again to get it even more. Um, they start to see that their customers are starting to, they're starting to lose loyalty of their customers because they keep on doing this, this behavior. So sometimes we have to escalate into litigation um, because frankly, the board is just not addressing a systemic risk. And sometimes mm -hmm. we need to escalate Ultimately, the board reports to us. We're the shareholders, and we have a responsibility to make sure that the company is addressing these risks. And so sometimes we need to vote in new board members. So that's kind of the path of escalation. Right. The vast majority of companies thank us for the data, thank us for recognizing risk, and say, we're going to take care of this. This is part of business. A few 
just won't go that route. Well, when you say, for example, 70% of shareholders want something, are you, does that mean 70% of the, pe- of the ownership of the business or 70% of people who have a vested interest in the business? Because there's a difference between percentage ownership and number of people who own shares. Do you understand the distinction I'm making? Yeah, it's the each share gets a vote. So if you own 100 shares of Apple, mm-hmm. you get 100 votes. If you own a million shares of Apple, you get a million votes. So it's it's counting up those votes. It's the vote. It's the number of people who are voting for versus the number of people voting against. So that's that's how it's tallied. It's not the number of shareholders because you've got big pension funds that own gotcha, massive gotcha. amounts and they don't just get one vote if you own a million shares. Of course. So when you're talking about this diversity, diversity, equity, inclusion score that was developed, um, what would a perfect score look like? And then how did someone come about designing that metric? So the team we brought together were people who have been working on this issue for some of them decades and really understood the nuance. And so we looked at a couple things. First thing, because of the George Floyd murder, we looked at what companies say. And so that's a small portion of the score, but what they say and then how they say it. So for instance, after the, um, I'm sorry, my dog is barking. If, I don't know if that's too noisy for no you. No worries. She's um, excited about improving the world. Yes, exactly. She's out there. Um, so what they say. So after the George Floyd murder, many companies put out a statement, a public statement. Some of them were signed by the CEO. Some of them were put into a desk drawer. We actually found a company that we didn't give them any points for a statement. And they said, but we made a statement. And we said, we couldn't find it. Can you help us find it? And say, oh, well, it's, it's, we have it filed here at the company. We didn't tell anybody about it. So, you know, that's kind of an example of unless you make a public disclosure, it really doesn't count because it's not a material disclosure. And that word is very important. Materiality means it's disclosure a company makes that affects an average shareholder from making a buy or sell decision. And companies are required by law, by the SEC, to disclose material issues. So information that you would need to make a decision. We felt that a racial justice statement is a material issue. We also felt that information around diversity, equity, and inclusion is material. And in fact, we wrote a letter. We had about $4.2 trillion of assets sign the letter, simply stating, we believe that diversity, equity, inclusion is a material issue and you need to make it public. We sent that out to 3,000 companies. And some of the companies got the letter and said, okay, and they started to disclose. Others said, no, we're not going to disclose. And so we started to file shareholder resolutions saying you need to disclose this information. So there's an evolution here where shareholders, investors are needing information. The companies are saying, we don't want to disclose it. We're saying it's actually your legal responsibility to disclose it. And then we have that conversation. And sometimes it's had publicly, sometimes it's had privately. But back to racial justice. So 20% 20% of the score is what they say. Now, in their letter, did they talk about um, systemic racism? Did they talk about what their plans are? It was very specific, these, these key performance indicators. The rest of the score is actually what they do. 
So what kind of policies do they have in place? What kind of practices do they have in place? Um, what are their employee, how do they deal with employees? Um, how do they recruit? How do they retain their employees? How do they promote their employees? All this information is what investors need to make a decision about how a company operates. And so that's the score. The score is a summation of those. Some get higher uh, percentage, some get lower percentage. So there's a whole scoring rubric that happens. Our whole methodology and our scoring rubric are transparently disclosed on our website. We update this once a quarter. And the response to companies, from companies, is that we got it pretty close to right. Um, we've had very few companies call us up and say, you got it wrong. And when they do and they show us, oh, we missed a disclosure, we change the score immediately. And we consider that engagement to be something really positive. Um, but very few that have come to us... We had an example where a company came to us and said, you got this absolutely wrong. We don't have any environmental violations. And it was really looking at environmental racism. We're looking mm -hmm. at companies who are dumping toxins into communities of color. And, there's, and, the com and the communities are suing them. So we consider those to be negative activities. Company came and said, we don't have a Superfund site. And we said, well, if you read our methodology, we include all of your subsidiaries and your subsidiary has a Superfund site, and it's right on the border of a, of a low-income community. And so that counts. And they were like, oh, okay, well, we didn't really read the methodology. So that's how the conversation goes. But now we have a dialogue with that company, and that company has now agreed to actually change all their racial justice um, policies and practices. It's turned into something very positive. Well, thank you for sharing your perspective on that. That's something I, I could uh, explore, I think, at another time. I'm not very educated on that particular topic. Um, as far as environmental challenges that we face today, what do you see as the role of corporations in the private sector have to play in um, fixing these problems? Let's start with, I think, some, a somewhat easier one. Um, I don't know if it's easier. Um, but just to talk about ocean plastics. Okay. So you've got... Essentially, the ocean ecosystem is just degraded massively because of this flow of plastics into the ocean that break down and then all the marine life thinks it's food, eats it. There's a whole toxic cycle that's happening, as well as you look at you know these images of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and the beaches in Bali just heaped with tons and tons of plastic. And basically, the ocean has become the garbage pit for the whole planet. And these plastics just don't go away. They are based in petroleum products and they just don't go away. So there's one way, one way to deal with it is to try to clean it up. It's an impossible problem. It's just, you will never get ahead of it. So our theory of change is that you stop the flow. So we went and we talked to the companies who are generating the most plastic, uh, fast food restaurants, for instance. And we had a conversation with McDonald's about styrofoam. Styrofoam breaks down and fish eat it. Uh, and we said, look, your brand is being associated with the destruction of this marine ecosystem. And they said, okay, uh, you know, we'll deal with it. They didn't move very quickly, so we filed a resolution, which now all the shareholders were looking at and going like, why is our brand associated with this? And in any case, it took a little time, but McDonald's signed a no styrofoam pledge uh, then Duncan agreed they will sign no styrofoam pledge. Young Buy brands. Uh, this was a couple of years ago. 
Um, Yum Brands then did, and that's Yum Brands is 6,700 stores globally. What this means is that three billion styrofoam cups are not being produced this year. Oh, an immediate pledge, like they're not going to phase it out, like they're stopping. No, right we're, away. We're, that was a few years ago. Now we are stopped. There are no more. They're not producing any more styrofoam. So again, three billion styrofoam cups, which means the demand for the oil and the natural gas that are used to, as the feedstocks for these is also being reduced. Now, Starbucks also, they said we're going to be using, instead of styrofoam cups, we're going to be using these um, these uh, cardboard cups that are recyclable. We actually got Starbucks to agree to have recycling, period. They didn't have recycling bins in Starbucks until shareholders said, this is something we should be doing. Our image should be very, you know, we have all these green logos and wood everywhere and everyone thinks we're, we're that way, but let's actually do it. So... Um, so, so ocean plastics, so fast food, that's one way to do it. Another area on, on climate is pesticides in the food system. I'm sorry, on environment. Pesticides in the food system. So most people don't realize it, but all of our wheat, oats, and beans are sprayed with a carcinogenic uh, chemical called glyphosate. It's also known as Roundup. Mm -hmm. They spray it right before they harvest it. And that chemical gets into our food system. It's deeply embedded in the food system, particularly in the United States, because the rest of the world, you have to, they have what's called the precautionary principle. It means you can't put anything in your food until you prove it's safe. In the US, we're the opposite. You can put anything in your food, and if somebody dies and you can prove causation, maybe you can get it removed, but very difficult. In any case, every food company is spraying glyphosate on all of their crops. So we went to Kellogg and said, look, we think there's risk here. We're essentially, we're poisoning our customers. Like, why is that? <clears throat> we think that's bad for business. And not only that, there's been these lawsuits, a $200 million and a $400 million lawsuit that somebody won because they spritzed glyphosate Roundup in their backyard to knock down the weeds. It's in every bowl of Special K. I mean, this is gonna be bigger than tobacco when these lawsuits start to happen. And so they realized, they said, yeah, there's a lot of risk there. So they made a pledge, no more glyphosate in their entire supply chain. Now, that's a lot of farmers being affected. But the farmers, they're also, actually, they don't have to spend the money on the chemicals and on the aerial spraying. So it's actually a net positive. Uh, regenerative agriculture, we talked to General Mills about this. And General Mills adopted regenerative ag across their entire supply chain for one very simple reason. they, We talked to them. They actually spoke about this at a webinar that we had. If you look at industrial ag and a regenerative ag, after a climate-induced superstorm, the industrial ag, the soil's all washed away. And so what General Mills says is, look, the regenerative ag, they have a few puddles because the soil can actually absorb so much more water. And so they said, we need a resilient supply chain. This is for our business. If we're going to be delivering our products to our customers, we have to make sure our supply chain is resilient. And so regenerative ag is the best way to do it. Pesticide reduction. In 2019, there were two companies dealing with this. When we did a survey again in 2021 of 17 major food companies, ag companies, 17 were dealing with pesticide reduction and regenerative ag. Why? Because General Mills and Kellogg started to get more customer loyalty because people were saying, wow, the food is safer to eat. Hmm. 
meant that investors started putting more money in those companies and all the other companies went, oh, well, those guys are leading, they're doing well, let's start to shift. Why are they being more successful? How do we be competitive? So we never ask a company to do the right thing. We ask a company to follow market forces. The market forces in this case say you're going to go out of business if you don't have a resilient supply chain. How do you have a resilient supply chain? You reduce pesticides, you work with farmers on, on developing regenerative farming. So we're shareholders. We want the companies to succeed. We are identifying risk and we are helping them to figure it out. Um, climate change is a whole, even a bigger problem and much more far-reaching because it affects every supply chain of every company. And I'll quote Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock, climate risk is investing risk. It's in every system. So every company for their own survival needs to reduce their emissions by 5% a year over the next 10 years. It's, it's not just oil companies, it's every company. And, mm -hmm. and every company is, is just part of an interwoven, interlocked system. And so as they're starting to recognize that, the companies are actually understand this. And they also understand that, that there are efficiencies that they can um, apply into their, you know, into their operations. And so that's, that is the flow of, of this. Everything that we're talking about in ESG, environmental, mm -hmm. social, and governance, is all about risk reduction. And so that's, as shareholders, that's really our responsibility to help our companies reduce risk. What are some of the most malicious cases you've been involved with? I'm sorry, malicious? Malicious, as in like the company knew they were doing something wrong, but they could make short-term profits, so they continued doing it anyways. And you had to keep advocating to be like, hey, this isn't in your long-term interests. Well, you know, we had a long, we still have an ongoing relationship with ExxonMobil. Uh, we started filing shareholder resolutions there in 2008 around hydraulic fracturing which was polluting the water systems. Uh, we filed, I think, 27 resolutions uh, since then. There have been 118 resolutions there for the last over the last 10 years. Uh, it's not a company that does a great job listening to their shareholders, even though we have been pointing out systemic risk. Uh, the biggest risk that they have is to the continued use of, of CapEx, of capital expenditures, into searching for more oil and gas that they will never be able to commercialize. There was a study, a report done in 2012 called The Carbon Bubble by mm -hmm. a guy named Mark Campanelli, who runs now Carbon Tracker. And what he did is he looked at what are all the reserves on the balance sheet of the 200 companies that are the largest coal and largest um, oil and gas companies. And he said, if all these reserves <clears throat> right now, this is 2012, were, <clears throat> were extracted and burned, we'd be at six degrees centigrade, an unlivable planet. So probably three quarters of those have to stay underground. Yet the Hopefully. company is claiming them as an asset on their balance sheet, which means they think they have commercial value, but they don't. So what the paper showed was this whole idea of climate finance, that the oil and gas industry was calling something an asset that really is not. It's called a stranded asset. It's going to be 
uh, these assets are never going to be commercialized. So the whole sector is overvalued uh, quite massively. And that has given rise to, well, a lot of work. A lot of our resolutions that we've been filing have been stop stranding assets. We are your shareholders. We think you're wasting money. Invest that same $15 billion a year into new projects, into new technologies, into new ways of actually thriving in a low carbon world. Actually define that. You are, you know, you're Exxon. You guys have the engineering prowess. You look at some of the European companies who transitioned from oil and gas and are now 100% offshore wind, and they are doing remarkably well. Uh, they, and they've made that transition, and yet a lot of the American companies are simply saying, no, we're just going to keep on business as usual, even though there is this massive risk. What's what's going on there? What what's what's up with that? Why do you what is the difference between the American and the European companies? Is it a cultural thing? What is it a what what is causing that tendency? It is a cultural thing. I mean Exxon in particular has a culture they've never had any senior executive that didn't start there at an entry level position. So anyone joining Exxon, uh, you know, right out of school is inculcated into the Exxon way of thinking and they just seem to think that uh, the world is not going to change. It's, it's strange because we meet with them and we say, you know, the demand projections that you guys are putting out here are not even close to what we see as reality. Like you haven't acknowledged that China and India are going to not have internal combustion engines in just a very short amount of time. You've not acknowledged that, uh, you know, that, that the whole world of transportation is just completely changing. It's completely electrifying. Uh, you haven't acknowledged, they just continue on, the, their demand projections are just not based in reality. And so we think that this is just a very risky situation. Now, it's risky for everybody, not just them, because everybody is invested in them. All of the indexes, so every mutual fund that's in every 401k plan and every pension is invested in this extractive economy. And the extractive economy is in the process of winding down. So we have a deep problem here. There's $10 trillion invested in 401k plans at, and 403b plans. So at every corporation has this retirement plan and every university has a retirement plan. And these are all invested in deeply in the oil and gas industry, in rainforest deforestation, uh, in private prisons. So the risk of being in these indexes, which everyone is, and no one realizes they are, most people do not realize that they are profiting from companies that are pretty much guaranteeing that there's not going to be a livable planet to retire onto. It's a strange situation. They are not, uh, they, there's no visibility into it. And also they're abdicating their vote. So, uh, you know, you look at people who work at Amazon, you know, Amazon's doing quite well in terms of climate change. You have 100,000 electric vehicles. They're powering their data centers with renewables. But every person who works at Amazon owns companies burning down the Amazon. They're just not aware of it. And they abdicate their vote to Vanguard, who votes against every climate resolution. Wait, wait, wait. votes for every CEO pay package. So there's just a disconnect. And we've been doing a lot of work. We have a system, a platform called Invest Your Values. You can go in and you can look up any mutual fund. You can look up... We're starting to put all the 401k plans up there too. 
and you can go look inside of exactly what's in there. And if you're an Amazon employee, go to investyourvalues.org, click on Amazon, and you will see that Amazon owns $631 million worth of fossil fuel investments and $48 million worth of deforestation investments. Okay. Right there, that, that was my question. Okay. Um, in your experience, what have you found is the most effective means or method for getting companies to make a change that's proposed by the shareholders, specifically around environmental issues or diversity inclusion? What mechanism makes them make a change the most? Is it a marketing ability or is it specifically an ability to make or raise more funds? What, what exactly have you found usually is most compelling to these large companies? Risk reduction. We shareholders come to them with data and a business analysis and say, there's risk in our current policies and practices, and here's how we can de-risk our investment. Here's how you can be more competitive. Here's how you can be more profitable. Here's how you can create a culture that attracts the best and the brightest. This is how you can um, serve your customers better. And most companies listen. Most companies say, I think I mentioned 188 engagements last year, 102 said thank you. And then another 40 after we filed the resolution said, yeah, you know what, you're right. And then the last group after we had the resolution and the vote said, you know what, you're right. This is, this is a better way to do business. So I, I don't think it's rocket science here. This is business 101. <laughs> This is like the most basic stuff. If you're an executive at a company, you know you want to reduce risk and be competitive. That, that's all this is about. You found that risk reduction is more compelling than um, the potential for greater growth? You know, there's a thing called modern portfolio theory that was written in 1956 that people still seem to um, refer to. And there's a new theory I update there's a, a book was just written last year about this about how modern portfolio theory is just really obsolete and what it says is that a portfolio that that beta meaning risk is much more important than alpha meaning growth to a portfolio that you will outperform the market if you're much more risk aware and risk averse than you are trying to um, go for the alpha and I believe that's true. I think that, I mean, the book and, and all of the academic research around it. I think Ray Dalio that. agrees as well. I'm sorry? I said, I think Ray Dalio agrees as well with his all-weather all portfolio. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing. If you're just going to be going for uh, the Milton Friedman theory, abuse your employees, uh, have slavery in your supply chain, Dump in the commons. Now let's, let's break those down. So dumping in the commons means you're going to be putting your carbon pollution at no cost. You can put your toxic waste out into the rivers at no cost. But when that toxic pollution goes downriver and into the local drinking supply and people in your own company get poisoned and you have a lawsuit did you actually have less cost or was it more cost? And there's been, again, a lot of academic studies that show if you had built a water filtration system, now you might have had to float a bond, raise some money, 
and pay that off over X number of years, you actually would have saved money in the long run. So we're going to talk about time horizon now. Putting the carbon pollution in the atmosphere. Yeah, it's cheap right now, but climate change comes back. Is that more expensive in the long run? Companies who have a smokestack, the pollution is going downwind. Now, you don't have to pay for all of those kids getting asthma in the plume because that's the way you can dump in the commons at no cost to you. But society's paying that cost. Those kids are going to go to the hospital. There's going to be... So at what cost and at whose cost is really the question. Um, you abuse your employees. You, you're extractive in your use of labor. You're not going to get the best talent who's going to come work for you. You want to create a culture. If you create a culture that people want to work for you, look at the, look at the McKinsey studies. They say that, let's just say 100% is somebody's just base level of working, doing their job. If somebody believes in the company's mission, you get 150%. If somebody really loves the company, you get 200%. And so these are, again, this is just data sets that I assume all these executives are reading because I'm reading them. So... <laughs> Take care of your employees. You, that's your greatest asset. Oh, my God. Um, and then your customers. Do you really want to poison your customers? Do you, I mean, people put toxins in their, in their, to their customers all the time. You want to take care of these people. You want loyalty. So if you're going to build a business long term, you look at all these things. Now, I sit down with CEOs all the time. And they say to me, you know, Andy, I, I, you know, I understand the resolution, and, but I'm just going to get killed in the short term. And I go, you know, I have your stock ledger open on my screen right now, and I am scrolling through it. Show me, who is a short-term shareholder? I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I've sorted them by the most, who owns the most shares? And I see pension funds, and I see big asset managers, and I see banks. I see people who've been holding your stock for 30 years, and will continue to hold it. Who are the short-term people you're talking about? Well, down at the very, very bottom, you see there's a couple of hedge funds and a couple of this and that. I said, okay, so you're making your most strategic decisions based on 10% of your shareholders. And they acknowledged, like, well, yeah. I said, so this is a myth. This whole myth of short-termism is just that. It is not real. If you look, <clears throat> like, who are you actually serving? Tell those short-term people... We prefer if you sell our stock. There's plenty of people who will buy it up. We're looking at long-term, and we are have also signed up for what is now a whole new philosophy of business, the new purpose of a corporation that the Business Roundtable put forth in, I think it was August of 2019, and then the World Economic Forum reiterated in January of 2020. And the World Economic Forum called it the fourth industrial age. They're saying this, this shift is as big as the industrial revolution. And I agree with them. A lot of people said all of this stakeholder capitalism is greenwashing. I don't, I, from day one, I said, no, this is saying that Milton Friedman's ideas that started in the 1970s are bankrupt, that they have created climate change, they've created ocean plastics, shredded our social fabric, and the companies are going, this is not sustainable in terms of sustainable for our business. So 181 companies, including BlackRock, JP Morgan, every Exxon signed new purpose of a corporation that they're gonna take care of all their stakeholders. 
their employees, their customers, their, their communities, their supply chain, and their shareholders. World Economic Forum has agreed with this as well. So now every company in the world has basically agreed to this new philosophy. Which now is what, what is this exactly? Philosophy? This is a yeah. philosophy that is that the shareholder, every shareholder resolution since the 1970s has been talking about one thing, stakeholder capitalism. That's all we talk about is taking care of your employees and reducing risk and all that. So everyone's now in agreement. We're just in the early implementation phases of this. And what we're seeing is the emergence of a regenerative economy based on justice and sustainability. We're literally seeing a whole new economy that investors are pouring money into. And we're also seeing companies deciding, I want to stay part of the extractive economy. And frankly, those companies are just going to wind down. Agreed. That's, that's what we're seeing. We're right now at this moment in time where there is an absolute decision being made at the board level of every company. And a lot of shareholders are going to their boards. If you don't decide to go in the way that will thrive into the future, we're going to have to replace you. And that's, again, our responsibility, that we don't want the companies that we own, that we love, to go down that path of having to wind down. Isn't it such an exciting time? Some people are really depressed, but I'm not because I'm talking to people who are in this space every single week. You know? Oh, no, it's like this is, it's been a log jam for years. Just nothing's moving. And now the log jam has cleared. And now, now we're in whitewater rafting. Like we didn't realize on the other side of the log jam was rapids, but it is like just, just going. And here's the thing. Technology is meeting policy and passion. These three elements are converging right now. Let me take you through it. On the policy side, the new SEC rule requires that companies disclose material information, back to material, critically important information has to be accurate. That's it. That's the entire rule just says that you have to disclose accurate data that's going to be verified and put in your audit. It creates trust, trust between a company and its owners. The SEC rule, that's a big policy change. Right now, companies disclose material data that's inaccurate, that's misleading. So you're going to have trust. The second thing is universal proxy. That goes into effect in August. And what that says is that everybody gets to vote on who's on the board. Right now, not every shareholder gets to vote because... There's this strange rule about if you have a, if you're running a board slate uh, different than the existing slate, you have to, you have to mail the ballot to all of the shareholders. It costs tens of millions of dollars. So only very wealthy organizations can do it. And generally they don't mail it to everybody because it's too expensive. And so people with smaller amounts of shares don't get to vote. So we're going to actually have democracy in selection of of board for the first time in August. This is the first time ever. Okay, so you've got, those are two policy things. Now technology, the technology that as you sow has built invest your values is the first time anybody can actually see inside their retirement plans. No one's ever been able to see. No, no Amazon employee knew what was inside at a granular level of every company. And I can tell you how complex it is because Generally, these plans have what's called a target date fund, you know, so it's got a date on it. You, you get the date where you're going to retire, and it transitions from more equities to more bonds over time, so less risk. But within a target date fund, there's like a dozen funds, and some of those are called collective trusts, 
that have no disclosure requirements. And so we have figured out how to, how to do this. No one's ever looked inside. So again, technology, you actually get to see what you own. The other technology is called pass-through voting. Right now, when you are part of basically any company in the S&P 500, you are abdicating your right to vote to Vanguard or BlackRock. They are generally voting with management against all the shareholder resolutions that you might care for. And we've done polls and about 70% of people want to be uh, involved in sustainable investing and voting. That's because the SEC said the shares must be voted. And there was no technical way to do it before. Well, guess what? This year, there is now a technical solution. And we're now working with a group of employees at Google who want to organize their, um, their fractional shares and vote differently than Vanguard. And we can do it now. There's, there's a company that can aggregate those shares. So I predict in the next three to five years, Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street together own 20% of every company. But it's a liability for them. They don't want to vote. They, it's, they don't own the shares, first of all. They're just middlemen. They're, they didn't earn the money. It's not their right to vote. And I believe that people will demand their right to vote. And so, just in summary, truth and trust, that's big. Being able to actually have democracy voting for new boards, being able to know what you're invested in, and actually getting your, your right to vote your your fractional shares in a mutual fund shifts the entire balance of power. That is happening right now. It's literally going into effect in the next few months. So we are at the cusp of a whole transformation that the World Economic Forum calls the fourth industrial age. And I agree with them. I think it's going to be transformative. And I think it's going to be all about this whole idea of a regenerative economy. And it's going to be focused on justice and sustainability. So that's what I see from where I sit. Man, well, you put it very eloquently, but you're basically saying what I've been feeling for the last few weeks, talking to people who are working in this economy. I've been feeling this shift, but you really put it into into words, into, I don't I don't even know. I didn't realize that that laws were shifting and stuff. It, you you definitely sell it well. It's not sell it well. This, this has been, you know... Um, like incredible, like attorneys have been working on this for, you know, uh, for forever. I mean, I mean, universal proxy, that's, that's, but that's been, it's been in the works for like seven years. Like I said, my uncle has been working on it his whole career. Yeah. Your uncle Sanford Lewis, he has been working on this for his whole life. And the pieces of this puzzle are coming, happen to be converging at exactly the same time. So, um, but years and years of work to get the climate change rule at the SEC. Uh, all of these things are, are all, it's, it's not just happening overnight. It's been, it's been long, long period of time to, to actually figure out how do we get ourselves out of this, uh, this Milton Friedman problem of self-destruction. Yeah, totally. Do you think we'll ever reach a point where the economy is so well developed that nonprofit organizations just won't be necessary anymore and every single company will be fully aligned with with the goals of humanity? I hope so. I you know, I often I often kind of you know, kid my staff that um if we if we can get all of this right then well, you know, we can put ourselves out of a job. Um 
I don't know, though. It's from where we sit, it's a different perspective on the world than the companies. So I think that shareholders will always have a, a role to help the company see the world and the company from a different perspective. And I think that's always going to be helpful. Yeah, that's a fair point. I could just, it seems like the the possibility is there for the system to be so well refined that every single business is improving the world just by being in existence. And at some point we wouldn't need uh, an entity that isn't necessarily feasible in the market because the market would be so developed. But uh, that's that's what I would like to work towards. So now that now that, that you guys have spent your whole life doing that work, I'll see if I can get it to the fifth fifth industrial revolution. There you go. Well, that's what you're building, right? With your real estate work, where every real estate transaction, it's um, the idea. You know, is is contributing to solving problems. Yeah, it's a lot, it's about empowering people to make an obvious choice to improve the world with their buying power. And I think that there's a lot of other businesses that are doing something similar. And I appreciate the work, like you said, that my uncle Sanford has done and that you have done, Andy, as you saw. I appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and explain. This is a very exciting time to, to talk to you, clearly. So uh, I appreciate it. Do you have any final pieces of advice for, for young folks who are passionate about pioneering this new and better world? Yeah, I would say look to your values, look what you really care about, what's in your heart, and make sure that everything you do in your life is aligned with it. So every purchase that you make, purchase from companies that you feel aligned with. When you make an investment, invest in companies that you feel aligned with. When you vote your proxies, vote aligned with your values that, that really manifest your values in everything that you do. And that is the change that ripples through everything. Because right now, we live in a world where we're told, no, you can't even know what you're invested in. No, you can't. It's too difficult. It's too complicated. It's too... And just... It's, it's actually not. The tools are emerging to, to enable you to be aware. So take the time to be aware and then make those choices every choice you make will have a ripple effect. Yeah, and I think that's the also the answer to escape the the nihilism problem of putting autonomy behind all of your decisions, creating your own meaning in in your life and taking responsibility for who you are manifesting yourself out into the world. That might sound scary for some people, but I found it to be particularly fulfilling and uh, fills my life with with joy to strive towards becoming better and better. But uh, Andy, I appreciate the time on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. My my pleasure. This is not a time for um, sitting on the sidelines. This is not a time for despair. And this is not a time for inaction. Every, every person can do amazing things right now. This is, this is a time for empowerment and, and self-realization. I love it. Couldn't agree more. All right, everybody. We'll see you on the next one. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.